Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I'm your host, Brandon Laws, and I'm excited to share this episode with you today. I had a conversation with Lawana Harris. She's the author of Diversity Beyond Lip Service, a coaching guide for challenging bias. This is an, a topic I've touched on in the podcast a little bit. I always like to find topics and have conversations with people where they're obviously experts in what they do. But where I feel like I have a lot of gaps personally, diversity and inclusion is a topic that I haven't talked a lot about. I'm not an expert on. And that's why I really enjoyed diving into this discussion with Lawana. She was fantastic. Her book is great. It really outlines where we're at from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, where we should probably be going, but it really comes down to having conversations and taking action. And for a lot of us, kind of like I just described with myself, you know, I haven't really had a lot of opportunity to have conversations. And so really, we talk about how organizations can make it safe to have these conversations about diversity and inclusion, and to be aware of where we're at, where we want to go. I think we all agree that having diverse workforces is not only the right thing to do, but it's going to be better for business. So I encourage you for one, action items for you listen to this podcast, it gives you a really good overview of diversity and inclusion programs, Lawana's model, and I think gives you enough information to take some action. I encourage you to read her book because she outlines the model, uh, the way she's defined it in her coaching programs. And you're going to learn a lot from it. Honestly, I love the book. I love the conversation even more. So enjoy the episode. And we'll talk to you next week. Lawana, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So your book, Diversity Beyond Lip Service, A Coaching Guide for Challenging Bias. It's a great book. It's a great topic. Admittedly, I will be vulnerable for a second. So I'm not an expert in this area, which actually makes this more of an interesting discussion. I've done minimal training. I've read a few books on diversity. but probably like most people you talk to, I'm sort of living in this bubble and I haven't had a chance to have a lot of conversations about diversity and inclusion. So I'm hoping to use this time with you as you're coaching me and you're explaining to me like one of the people that you would interact with that just doesn't quite get it. Is that fair for this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I will say first, the short answer is yes, it's fair. And I'll say, I bet you know a lot more than you give yourself credit for, because this is about human interaction and human Mm -hmm. diversity. So even though I'm very grateful to have written a book to share some of my experiences and what I hope to be some viable solutions, none of us has it all right. We're all learning and evolving together. So yeah, I give yourself a little more credit. Okay. I appreciate that. So let's look at this like holistically, this diversity and inclusion topic, this conversation. Why aren't we further along when it comes to these types of conversations and even programs when we look at all organizations? Yeah, that's a great question. And the thing is, there's no one answer to that. One that I like to explore and to take a deeper look at is 
the dynamic of power differential. Mm. And when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we tend to find a superficial layer of engagement around maybe hiring more women, hiring more people of color or people with disability, LGBTQ. It tends to focus on that representation piece of diversity and not so much on the inclusion. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about inclusion, that means folks not only have to be hired, they have to have a chance to grow, to be promoted, to develop, to enter some of the key positions in an organization. And when you look at that and you look at the traditional patterns of power and control in an organization, then there has to be some shifts. And not only does there have to be some shifts in power, there has to be some tough conversations taking a hard look at reality. And that's not easy. No, I think it's a good point. And I think if people have a fear around it, if they're just not ready for the conversation or what it is, but I do believe that there's a fear out there about, you know, implementing diversity and inclusion strategies and maybe they're not going to do it right. Or maybe they just don't know enough about it. Like for one, do you believe there's a fear around that? And if so, where do people even like take action from that? Short answer again, yes, there's a fear around that. And I'll name that for some people. And it's even knowing what to say. What language do you use around d and I'll give you a, a real world example. Take myself. I like to be introduced if someone's going to include my race as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And, but there are others that may say, well, should I call her African-American? Yes. Or is she of African descent? You know, what is the right thing to say? So something that simple in an introduction for me as a woman of color, again, I prefer black, then someone could feel like, oh, well, I'm not really sure I'm ready to talk about this because I don't know what to say and I don't want to say the wrong thing or mess up. And I think when we get to a point where we can be open and be more vulnerable and quite honestly forgiving, we're not going to get this right. There's so much depth to the elements of human diversity. We just have to be willing to take the steps to educate ourselves also to gain awareness from others and move forward from a point of mutual understanding and solidarity. It's interesting you were mentioning about whether you like to be referred to as Black or African-American. And I think you'd mentioned kind of middle way through the book about microaggressions. And you know how some people will say, oh, I'm colorblind. But I think like just to your point about having a conversation about what you prefer to be referred as, like colorblind is almost like saying... And I wouldn't have thought about this, honestly, before I started having conversations, but it's almost like you don't want to acknowledge that there's any sort of difference between us as individuals. Is that like how to frame it up as far as like colorblind being a bad thing and being a microaggression? Well, here's the thing. I'm conscious about saying it's a bad thing. Okay. Yeah, I would say it's not the best way to look at it. And when you talk to people of color, it's dismissive and it does offend. Yes. But again, I would hate to put the label as bad because when people have that awareness and then they understand, and especially with the colorblind example, I really don't know that many people who use that term have malintent. Exactly. It's more of not having the awareness that this could offend and Mm -hmm. more importantly, the impact. Because you think about all of our lived experience as people of color, it has the backdrop of race, of being aware that we're different and that we're not in the majority. 
Now, some people don't want to address that at all because they feel that if we acknowledge difference, then that in and of itself is a method of division. Yep. But of course, we know it's not. If anything, if we open ourselves up to celebrate our differences, then we can better connect. So yes, you take the example of a gentleman, and I use this sometimes in my talks. I put up a slide that has African-American executive in a suit in his office, a very, you know, obviously he's an executive level. And then I have the same gentleman in a black hoodie and some gray shorts to go out for a run. And I put that there and I say, this should not be a life or death situation. Just because mm -hmm. he decides to take a run in a hoodie before work, you know, that should not be a life or death situation. So when somebody says, I don't see color and they go into the organization and they only interact with him, you know, in the business suit as the executive, and they don't yep. realize that that same executive could take a run and because of the way he's dressed, it could be a life or death situation. So to ignore that element of his lived experience is to not see him. That's such a great point. And honestly, like I probably have used that colorblind statement at one point. But to your point, it was never out of malintent. It's just because I hadn't had enough chance to make it feel safer. I can have that conversation about backgrounds. And I just haven't had a lot of opportunities. So I think if there's probably an issue with diversity and inclusion programs, it's that we haven't had a really good safe space to talk about this, right? I so agree. And you know, I will say it's not for a lack of trying on behalf of mm -hmm. some organizations, not all. There are some who don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. So yeah. they default to, you know, really focusing on gender as, you know, the bulk of their activity in the DNI space because they feel that that's more using air quotes here safe. And yep. trust me, as a woman, I definitely would not say that it's not, you know, any of the aspects of diversity are any less important than the other. However, we want to succeed across all aspects of diversity. And to your point, sure, there are conversations happening, whether or not employees feel safe enough to truly get to the levels that bring about behavioral change is the question that I pose. Because I don't know many organizations these days that don't have some form of ERG, employee resource group or BRGs. You know, we have numerous acronyms, business resource groups. So there are conversations happening. The question is, are they at the level of really provoking change at a systemic level and at the behavioral level? And I don't know that we go there going back to the point of folks may not know how. Yeah. It was interesting. I had a meeting this morning with a colleague and I had your book sitting down on my table and I was like, hey, I got this interview later on. And she looked at the title and pointed right at the word lip service on the title diversity beyond lip service. She's like, this is exactly what's wrong with diversity programs. So with that said, why did you put that in the title and define lip service and why that's wrong with what's going on in the diversity and inclusion conversation? Well, the thing is, you're not really going to find many, if any, organizations and especially executives that would say they don't believe in diversity or that they're not allies or they're not supportive of diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. So the words are there. I would even say for many, the intent is there. But what happens is many times, and this is based on evidence, based on the data, over time trending for decades, the intent 
is not matched with corresponding impact. So there is a gap. And that gap can be seen when we see executives come out and make a public statement. We're going to have 40% women on our board by Mm -hmm. 2040. Or we're going to have 50% women in our senior level executive leadership positions by 2021. And then the time frame happens and they don't hit the mark. And it just, you know, for some reason, the same level of accountability as if that were to say a performance goal for sales or any other performance goal is not applied. So you have the lip service that says we're committed. You set a benchmark, you even put a timeline, and yet we find ourselves today in 2019 having the same conversations that we were having over 20 years ago when I entered the corporate arena. And you know what? That's lip service. Mm -hmm. You wrote that increasing diversity without increasing inclusion is a recipe for failure. Why is that? Because if you bring someone into an environment that is not ready to receive them, they will not stay. So if you hire more diverse talent, bring them into the organization, onboard them, get them into your corporate culture. If that culture hasn't been educated, made aware through a number of modalities, not just unconscious bias training, but a holistic approach that this is not about a program. This is the way we do business. So first of all, diversity and inclusion shouldn't be confined to a program or an initiative. It is a part of corporate culture. If it's not embedded in that culture, I could give you an example of what may happen and I've seen happen many times. Diverse talent is brought in, hired. Maybe you have some women who break through into the executive level positions, even on the board, different things like that. And if that environment is not ready for them, they don't have a sense of belonging. They don't feel they truly have a voice. They feel that they may be the victim of tokenism and they leave. And that's a lose-lose for the organization and the individual because you've hired, upskilled, trained, maybe done some development and talent management, and now you've lost this key talent from the organization because the inclusion part wasn't given the attention that it deserved. Yeah. You spend quite a bit of time talking about privilege, and that's an area where I've heard that term a lot, but I just didn't know how it was meant and how you could use it in a positive way. And I think you really shed light on that. There was one statement in particular or story that you talked about. I think it was like a senior leader, maybe as a CEO of a banking organization. And you described how he got up on stage and said, like, we are going to not only be hiring for diversity and talent, but we are going to make sure that they feel included. And you're kind of making the point that it's got to start at the top people who are in a privileged situation, they can use that for good and it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Can you shed some light on that whole section? Because I think there's so much power to it where a lot of people just aren't exposed to this side of what privilege means. Sure. And I will tell you that I work from a very broad definition of privilege and understanding in that every person has a degree of privilege. Typically, when you have the privilege conversation, It's very heavily and and rightfully so because white heterosexual men are the most privileged when you look at different demographics. However, they're not the only demographic that has privilege. Everyone has some privilege, such as I am a black woman 
but I'm also a Christian. So as mm-hmm. a Christian, I have religious privilege because that is a dominant religion in my country. So that's the first piece is all of us have a degree of privilege. And from that understanding, what I'm proposing is that everyone take a look at the privilege that you have, whatever amount it is, and use it for good for advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So with that example, here is an individual who is in the most privileged class. And now you have that platform, you have the voice, you have the power and the influence to open the doors for others. And when you look at the privilege, instead of from a shaming and a finger pointing perspective, it's more of how do we, and of course, over time, you want that to change as going back to that power differential. But because we can't just, you know, snap our fingers and change a whole systemic value system, if we work with where we are and everyone identifies the privilege that they have and everyone takes action to use that privilege for good, then we all can move forward together. So like that individual who's opening the conversation, who's challenging the status quo, who's not going to tolerate any type of exclusive behaviors, who's going to welcome in people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, differently abled, sexual orientation, then that takes privilege and turns it on his head. Instead of being the barrier that it has been seen as traditionally, now we can take that barrier and begin to shift mindsets so that it's used as an enabler. I love that. And there's a quote I pulled that actually illustrates almost the opposite and what's actually happening a lot when I think when this topic of privilege comes up. So the quote says, in one of my coaching sessions, an executive level sales leader shared that as a white man, he'd been made aware of his privilege, but he was never told what to do about it. As a result, he was left feeling guilty about and disconnected from the ongoing diversity and inclusion conversations happening in his organization, end quote. And I think that's what's the issue, right? Is like people bring it up and whether it's like an open dialogue or it's really harsh and makes people feel bad, but they talk about it, but they don't say, here's what we can do next about it. People feel guilty about it. They resort to their safe space, their bubble and become disconnected from the overall conversation. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, I put myself in in the position of a white male in a senior or executive level position in an organization, even CEO, and I get an invite to come to a session that's going to talk about privilege. Yeah, sign me up, right? No. If the understanding is I'm going to a session, unfortunately, I'm going to be targeted maybe feel some finger pointing, maybe feel some shame and guilt. No. And that's where I think as we open up the conversation and we set the boundaries to understand that this is about us being humble and open and curious. When we do that, then we can invite white men into the conversation, which is something that I really encourage to make sure that we don't expect white men to be out on the fringe as executive sponsors, as, you know, in this, again, operating on the fringe, but not fully engaging. And MARC, Mark, they do a great job with some of their men advocating real change. They do some good work within that arena. And I think if we set the tone that this is not about judgment, 
This is not about pointing fingers. This is about us coming together to find ways for us to move forward in solidarity. Then we'll see some of the walls come down and we'll be able to get to that meaningful action where we can begin to move the needle and get beyond just that lip service level. Yeah. So if we get to the point where comfortable talking about it, open up the dialogue, everybody's involved. What do we do about unconscious bias? Because I feel like, you know, it's unconscious for a reason. We're not really aware it's there, but it affects our hiring practices, the way we recruit, all of that. How do we overcome it when we're not really aware of it? Yeah. Well, we don't get rid of it. That's one thing. So we'll never get rid of all bias. But what we can do is we can build in some practices. We can identify our blind spots and there's some assessments. There's a number of activities. I have a self-assessment and, you know, included with the book and some of the materials I built around that with the workbook and things. There's others out there that are, you know, great. And so number one is to educate yourself, know yourself. And that's why I'm introducing what I feel is a powerful coaching practice, even at the intersection of professional coaching and DNI, because a lot of times we are trying to educate and have a knowledge transfer about unconscious bias. You have bias. We all have bias. Here's how it plays out, those kinds of things. But in my feedback and research, folks leave those trainings wondering, what do I do now? I get it. I have bias. They take the implicit association test, the Harvard test that's out there online. They do all those kinds of things, but they're still left with a void of what to do with this new awareness. And that's where I introduce inclusion coaching because it gives individuals a chance to go inside and realize Mm -hmm. what's going on in me. How do I process diversity and inclusion? How do I process inclusive behaviors, microaggressions, gaslighting, all these different things that apply to this DNI arena? Where am I in this? And after individuals get a real sense of where they are beneath that superficial piece of, yes, we should all, you know, embrace DNI, but really get underneath for some of the pieces that may be honestly a little ugly and we may not want to own. But when we get to that level of radical truth for self, then we can begin to look at now layering on how do I need to better adapt and connect with others? Where are some mm-hmm. of my blind spots? So using coaching, it helps us go to the level of values, motivations. And by doing that, you get past someone who's simply complying because the company has made this mandate that we have to increase diversity and inclusion. Your book describes a model that you created for bringing structure to the inclusion process. We didn't talk about it because I wanted to cover the why behind it all and kind of the current status. If you would, though, maybe hit some quick points on the commit model. I really think people should get your book because it is a blueprint for how to bring this model to the organization. But maybe just describe what it stands for and how people can use it. Sure. So going back to that fundamental question of how to move beyond lip service, because organizations are saying the right thing, but again, the intent is not matching the impact. So I created Commit based on my own personal experience as a Black woman, both in my personal as well as corporate experience, and then all the stories of folks that I had coached, mentored, even some of them reported to me when I was a business leader at large multinational organizations. And taking all of that, I wanted to introduce a simple universal practices around inclusion 
in something that's memorable and actionable. And that's what commit is, because many times what we see when the intent is not matching up with the impact, there is a lack of commitment at some level. And that's why it's called commit. And in that model, I just give six universal behaviors that can be used globally, and it helps bring a memorable framework that can be used to create a common language around DNI. But also to your point of where do we get started? It gives organizations, individuals, and teams a framework to get started with this, to get everyone level set with that ground level knowledge, and then you can build from there. That's fantastic. And again, I want to encourage listeners to go get the book because you're going to get, I mean, every chapter is dedicated to those six areas. So it's beautiful. Luana, I wanted to ask you, so you ended the book with a really powerful section about how you've been treated in your professional career over the years, being a Black woman. Why did you decide to end the book that way? Because it felt to me like that was so powerful. And my heart just kind of broke in hearing those because I don't hear stories like that all the time. It almost felt like leading with it would have been really impactful. But I don't know. Did you go through that thought process of like, do I want to even put this in there? And where do I put it? I did. And I will tell you, maybe you should be a book editor because that was the number one fight on this book. Oh, no. Yeah, it, is, it was. That was the number one fight on this book, both from my publisher, Barrett Kohler, whom I love, but then also from the review editors, which included some from academia and, and different aspects. And so they wanted it up front. And I'll tell you, I fought hard on that. I didn't mm. want it up front. And it's because one of my own experiences, I didn't want to come across as the angry black woman. I get that. Yeah, that's a stereotype for women of color and specifically black women. So I didn't want anyone to read that chapter and think, oh, this is going here to we go crazy. again. Here we go again. Yep. Another angry black woman, you know, airing all her griefs and things like that, because that's not what it's about. Yep. This is about saying, hey, number one, this is real. Number two, it is happening in your organizations. And if you don't see it, don't know it, it's because you don't want to. And all of that said, I'm still not here to throw stones and, you know, build any walls or anything like that. I'm just saying it is real. Here's tangible experience that I lived. And come on, let's work together because we can do this. I've also seen it done well. And when we give the intention and we really have purpose about what we're doing, we can do this. Yep. I love that. I love the way you frame that up. And I thought that was why you probably put that at the end is that you wanted to come off as here's the way I see it. I'm objective, looking at the facts. Here's how I've helped people. Here's what other people are doing. And then by the way, here's my experience. And it's, you know, it's all related to this. I think the way you did it was perfect. It makes a lot of sense. It's a really powerful story. And it's, you know, disturbing in a lot of ways, but I think we can all learn from it. Yeah, we're not perfect. I think you put Google's diversity and inclusion statement. And one of the lines they had in there, which totally stuck out to me is like, Hey, we're not perfect. We're still working on this. It was something to that effect. But it's an iterative process. We're not going to be perfect. I'm not perfect. And that's why I'm very fortunate to have this conversation with you because I know I could be better. And it just takes a lot of conversations like these. Absolutely. And none of us are perfect. Even if you hear folks who are, you know, self-proclaimed DNI experts and all of that, <laughs> yeah. we're, trust me, we are all learning together. And the minute we think we have something figured out, it's going to change because that's the nature of human diversity. So we just have to remain humble with cultural humility and with curiosity. And we go forward trying to keep the betterment of all as our commonality. Lawana Harris, 
thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Your book is Diversity Beyond Lip Service, a coaching guide for challenging bias. Where can people get the book? Where can people follow you and follow the work that you're doing? Sure. You know, I'm online at Coach Luana for Twitter and Instagram. My website is LawanaHarris.com, L-A-W-A-N-A, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S.com. And then, of course, LinkedIn and all those other places you'll find me by my name as well. And then, you know, I also encourage you, if you like what you read and you feel you want to implement it to get the action guide, because that gives you some of the application tools to actually bring it to life because it's not about just having more discussion. It's about actually having some meaningful action. Thank you so much, Lawana, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. 